Our text this morning is from 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. You can find this on page 1023, and the Bible's placed on the chairs in front of you. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Lindsay. Welcome to everyone here in person, also online. Um, as I like to say when I bust out the cardigan, uh, welcome to Pastor Ransom's neighborhood, all right? For those of you who don't understand that joke, you're much younger than I am. Um, so, we are in 1 John 4. We continue in our series. I would say, I'm going to say that this passage is connected to, it's a subset of the passage we talked about last week. So if you recall, we talked about what should our expectations be as we traverse this world as Christians? What should we expect the world's reaction to us to be? How should we treat our brothers and sisters in the church? And John answered those questions. We should expect rejection and hatred. Don't be surprised, brothers, when you are hated by the world. And he also said, if you see a need in the church, if you see a, a, a need of a person who's your brother or sister and you close your heart, then the love of God is not in you. Well, here John uh, goes a little deeper on that interaction with the world piece. I was in my studies this week. I came across this quote. I think it's a great place to start. D.A. Carson says this about Christianity and culture. All forms of Christianity are inherently and unavoidably embedded in a cultural expression. Think about this. There's a lot of things we can unpack from this. We don't have time today, but think about this. The, the Christianity that you experience as someone who lives in Columbia, South Carolina, is embedded in a culture that's unique to Columbia, South Carolina. It's different than even someone from the Northeast or from the Northwest or from California or certainly other countries and other cultures. And so we have, again, uh, this, this this unavoidable situation, an environment in which we are Christians. Now, that, that means that certainly we have a unique experience, but it also means something else. All Christians across the world and every culture have to sift through that culture and understand what is true and what is not. We have to understand what is from God and what is not from God. And so because we're embedded in our culture, unavoidably so, John is going to help us know how to sift and separate what is truth and what is not. Um, as you think about the concept of the Christian and its culture, um, uh, there's, it actually depends on how Christ is in relationship with culture. And so, uh, rewind back to 1951, this gentleman named Richard Niebuhr wrote a book, and in this book, he outlined five different perspectives, five different uh, positions, if you will, of Jesus in relationship to culture. I'm going to run through these very quickly, because I think it really adds some texture to what we're talking about today. 
Uh, and so he has five categories. They all run on a spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, you have Jesus Christ and culture being completely separate. And so there are two kind of perspectives that come from this idea. One is Christ against culture. A good example of this is like the Amish. Okay, the Amish, what do the Amish believe? That they cannot live the Christian life in our culture. So what do they do? They remove themselves. They've picked another culture which they believe they can, they can follow Christ in because that is how they see Jesus Christ. There's nothing in our culture to redeem, and so they leave it. Another version of that, not quite as extreme, is Christ and culture and paradox. Uh, there is no separation of the people of God and the people not of God, but, and so they're, in a sense, they're forced to interact, but again, this, the, the, they believe that there's nothing in culture to redeem. And so think about the Pharisees. How did the Pharisees live their life? They walked amongst the people, but what did they do? When they saw things that, that were not of God, they turned their nose up at it. There was nothing in it to redeem at all. Christ was not a part of culture. Now, if you swing the pendulum all the way the other way, there's this third category, Christ of culture, and this is really cultural Christianity. There's no difference between living your life as a Christian or living your life not as a Christian. Everything in culture has some basis in goodness of Christ, and all of it represents who Jesus is. And so you would expect, if, if this is true, to be fully accepted in culture and, and to go with culture on all the things that they say and believe. And we can see from last week and other teachings in Scripture that this is not necessarily something that is good to be accepted or expected. Now we go kind of the middle of the road, okay? Middle of the road. There's two categories here. First, it's called Christ above culture. Now, praise the Lord. God is above all things. Jesus is king of the universe. He's over all things, including culture. But Christ above culture, this fourth category, really sees the, the key to conversion is set in a power shift. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, it, yes, Christ is over culture. Culture has rebelled. And the way to fix this is to shove culture back underneath the rule of Jesus Christ. The implication that John is uh, hinting at, not even really hinting, is that none of these four categories work. None of these four categories are the biblical answer to how, as Christians, we're to navigate our way through this world. John's command, remember last week, how did he tell us we're to interact with the world? through? We're to love them through deed and truth. That, that you can't be separate as you love people. You can't love people and not be with them. And, and to love and serve them in deed and truth means you're not necessarily ruling over them. We're not turning our nose up from what they do, but we're also not saying, hey, everything's hunky-dory, let's just go with the flow. There's a balance. And so this fifth perspective is the one that John is promoting this morning, and it's gonna be a good context for us to understand this passage, and that perspective is called Christ-transforming culture. Christ-transforming culture. It still holds that Jesus Christ is king. It still holds that, that it's a conversionist viewpoint. Meaning, there are things in our culture that can be and should be redeemed, but we're not going to rule the, over them or, or dominate them to do so. No, we, we are called to bring a spiritual conversion. Everything in culture can be redeemed, and it has to be redeemed through belief in Jesus Christ. Write down this reference if you want to. I mean, it's not a command, I guess. Um, John 17, 14 through 19, the high priestly prayer. 
listen to the vision that Jesus has for his people. Listen to this and see which one of these categories this best describes. Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross. He's praying in an intimate setting to God the Father, and here's what he has to say. I have given them your word, speaking of his disciples, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. You see the separation there, all right? So now everything, it, it, Christ cannot be of culture in this sense because th- we are different than the culture because they hate Jesus, they also hate us, we're separate. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask, listen to this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth, And so listen to this, as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. And they also may be sanctified, they may also be sanctified in truth. Do you hear the vision that Jesus has for his people? It's not to be separate. It's not to rule it over them. It's not to turn our noses up. It's to be in and amongst and to share the truth of Christ with the world. And that's where John is coming from. He is giving us this instruction on how we navigate the world and all the things we hear in the world. And he's saying, listen, we need to interact with the world in confidence as we are tethered to the truth. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in to the text. By the way, one of our uh, deacons, Bill Watkins, broke the clock back there, so I may just go for hours. Who knows? I, I'm, I'm, un, I'm untethered from time. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day, and thank you for these people. Thank you for this place. Thank you for those who are here regularly and are part of this family. I thank you, Lord, for all those who are visiting today. Thank you that we are on the cusp of Advent, a time to remember just what you did to save us, that we may anticipate, as Mary and Joseph did, as the world did, with the coming of Christ the first time, may we anticipate the coming of Christ the second time to redeem all things. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me this morning to be clear, to be on the agenda of the Holy Spirit, and I pray that my words would fall on hearts not because they're persuasive, but because the Spirit is active here this morning as you have promised that it is. So I pray that you'd be with us as I speak and we listen to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So John begins this passage with a command, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Okay, this is an important phrase, do not believe every spirit. So um, we live in a time that I would classify as an information superhighway. All right, so there, there is really nothing off limits to what we hear, what we know, what we, we learn. Um, and, I, and what John is saying is, listen, as we go through the world, as we hear things, as we see things, nothing is neutral. Nothing is neutral. Look at the very last part of verse six. So jump all the way to the end of the passage. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John here is saying, listen, It's not about accuracy. He's not like Snopes.com or something. He's saying, listen, there's something deeper than fact or fiction. There's something deeper that we need to look at as Christians. And what is the motivation? Where do these things we're hearing come from? Because either they're going to be from a spirit of truth, the spirit of God, or a spirit of error, which is in the world. 
And so the stories that we read in the news, the TV shows that we watch, the friends we have, the conversations we have with them, everything has a source. Everything has a source. Everything comes from a spirit either of error or truth. So while in this world, let's be honest, lots of things sound really good. <laughs> lots of things we hear sound good. But that's not where we're supposed to stop. It's not a filter of what sounds good or not. John is saying we have to go deeper than that. What is the spirit of the thing that we're hearing? Where does it come from? Look at verses 1, 3, and 5. I'm going to jump around a little bit today. He says at the end of verse 1, For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. I just skipped down to verse 3. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, is now in the world already. And then verse 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Here's the point. There are lots of voices in our lives. There were lots of voices in the lives of these ancient Christians. Lots of talk going on. Lots of talk. And John is classifying those who are not coming from a spirit of God as false prophets. And I would say this, with the advent of social media in our world, false prophets are no longer these figureheads who have large crowds. It really is anybody who can type. <laughs> anybody who can type is a potential false prophet because information is, is so free-flowing. Everyone has been given a platform to spout whatever they think their truth is. And so when we are listening to these things, we ask a series of questions. And I think some of those questions could be, hey, does that sound good to me? Does that benefit me and my opinions? Does that support the things that I believe in? But I want to pose a problem with that. Think about where that filter comes from. If we're not founding this on Jesus Christ, if we're just asking, does this sound good to me? Think about where that filter comes from. It comes from, let's just talk about me. It comes from my experiences, my experiences. It comes from my moral values. It comes from the things that I like and dislike. And most of all, it comes from all those things which are corrupted by sin, <laughs> corrupted by my sin. I cannot think straight on any of those issues because I'm a sinful, broken human being. Think about how scary that is. If I only look to myself to filter what is right and what is wrong, it's going to be a mess. There's going to be zero organization. You should go look at my desk in my office. It would be crazy. And so we got to be more than just personally discerning. We have to have more than just a personal filter. John is calling us to an anchor, a foundation, something to be tethered to. We need to have the ability to hear information that's thrown at us and know not just fact from fiction, but godly from not godly. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, he says in verse 2, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Test the spirits. And thankfully, he gives us the anchor. Look to verse 2. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Here we go. All right, the instructions. Every spirit, every source of information that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What is the key to true truth? <laughs> What's the key to godly truth? Jesus Christ is the key. Jesus Christ is the key. Jesus, as we know from Scripture, is God. He was, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and not only that, he came at Christmas, we celebrate this, he came, the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. God stooped low. He condescended. No other religion in the world teaches us that God became flesh for a purpose, not just to see what it was like or fun. No, he became flesh in order to save his people from their sins. And so Jesus Christ demonstrated throughout his life perfect dependence, perfect submission to God the Father. And in the end, what did he do? He died for his enemies. Think about this. He died. We're his enemies. We were his enemies. In our sin, we rebelled. He died for his enemies. And, and it's ironic. Think about this. He died for his enemies, so what? That he would defeat our enemies. <laughs> he died for us to defeat sin, death, and the devil. And then he rose again in victory. And so what is the source of godly truth? What's the source of true truth? Jesus, first of all, is the singular savior of the world. So if you're listening online this morning, you're here this morning, and you're wondering who is Jesus, hear that truth. You may believe it or not. Jesus is the singular savior. This is objective truth. This is not something that is true whether you believe it or not. These things happened. This is truth. More than that, Jesus is the singular most important truth in history. The most important truth in all of history. Everything we weigh and measure in the information-packed uh, world that we live in comes back to do they affirm Jesus Christ as Savior and God or not? Jesus is the rock to which all true godly truth is tethered. I've been appreciating 1 John because John does not just talk about lofty things and moves on. He's very practical. He gives us how to apply the filter. We can see this in verse 3. So it's not just, hey, does this sound good? It's deeper than a personal benefit or preference. Verse 3 tells us, in every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of of Antichrist. So the question is not, does this sound good to me? The question actually we should be weighing and measuring and sifting through culture with is, does this information being presented recognize Jesus as the Christ? Does it do it? I was thinking back um, to fifth grade, and I, I was wondering why it took me this long to actually understand this concept, but Mrs. Carter uh, I remember one day in class, it was after a quiz, and it was like a true and false quiz, and a bunch of people did it really bad. And she said, now class, if the whole statement is true, except for one thing, it's false. And I remember being like, oh yeah, now I could get better grades on these true and false quizzes. I'm not sure, again, fifth grade seems late for that. But what John is saying is the whole thing can seem true or read true, but if one part of it is not true. It can't be considered godly truth. And so we might hear things that sound good and hear things that, that sound a little biblical. If they don't affirm Jesus, you can't count them as godly truth. So I'm going to talk about a couple examples this morning. You'll probably enjoy this. The first one's politics. So there you go. Welcome to Pastor Ransom's Neighborhood. Um, here's what I want to say, okay? Parts, parts of both the Republican and the Democratic platform, parts of them resemble biblical truth. So if you take all the issues that they weigh in on, you can find things in both sides that look like biblical truth. That's why 
many people that we're talking to in a political season say, I, and, and both sides say this, how could you possibly be a Christian and vote for so-and-so? And both sides have that same idea. Why? Because there's things, parts of each of those platforms that seem biblical. But here's the bursting of the bubble. Unless they affirm Jesus as Christ, we can't recognize them as godly truth. We can't recognize them as that. That's what John is saying. It's not that it just sounds good or it's adjacent to something we like. Do they affirm Jesus Christ? And so what is the answer? What is the answer? What does John want us to do? Does he want us to remove ourselves from the political system and turn our nose up at it? We ought not to, there's nothing there to redeem. No, that's not what he says. He wants us to serve and love the world in deed and truth. And so think about this. As we look at what the world does, and I've said this several times over the last several months, the world is great at diagnosing problems. They're great at it. They see them just as clearly as anybody but they have no resources, zero resources to find solutions because they don't have Jesus. And so as we see these conversations taking place and we see these things that are adjacent to biblical truth, but they're not affirming Jesus Christ, not only can we classify them in our own hearts correctly and accurately, we can speak the truth into them, church. That's what we're called to do. You realize there is no solution outside of Jesus Christ. And that may seem simple, but that's the reality. All wrongs are made right. All wounds are healed. All feelings that are hurt are made well. All injustice is made justice in one person, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. Another easy topic, let's talk about science, okay? Um, and I'll go much more quickly through this, but listen. Theories that don't recognize Jesus as God or Savior are not godly truth. They may be accurate at the surface, but there's a deeper truth than technically correct. Without recognizing Jesus as the Christ, God as creator, the full truth is missing. So what are we to do? To throw science out the door? No. That's, that's turning our nose up at it as if it's not redeemable. That's not how Jesus works. What are we to do? We're to redeem it through Jesus Christ in his name, to point those that we're in conversation with to Jesus, the real solution. Do you see how creation becomes so much more incredible and beautiful when Jesus is behind it? And so John, as he continues in the last few verses here, he wants us to interact with the world in confidence, in confidence. We don't have to go out in trepidation. We don't have to go out worrying what we're gonna say. We have to go out in confidence. Look at verse four. There's good news for those in Christ. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them, speaking of the world, for he who is in you is greater than who is in the world. With every command comes a promise. With every command comes a promise. So what are we to do? We're to weigh and measure the spirits, the source of the things we hear, the things we think we know. We're to weigh and measure it against Jesus Christ. And say, what's the promise? That we have the thing we need already. (laughs) 
We don't have to overcome the world because Jesus has done that. And guess what? Jesus lives in us through the power of the Spirit. If we are in Christ, he is in us. We have what we need. We have what we need. And so as verse 5 says, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We will never stop the world from speaking. We can't stop that. The world will always speak will always talk. Remember what John said last week. It's not about talk and word. It's not about talk. It's not, talk is cheap. Let's, let's minister to them, love them in deed and truth. Since we are in Christ and he is in us, his victory is our victory. And the world's words need not distract us or overwhelm us. Not only that, we go to verse six. We have more than just the indwelling of God as if that's not enough. Verse six again, plain and simple. We are from God. He's re-announcing this promise. And then he says, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. You realize, in addition to the promises of God, in addition to the indwelling of the Spirit, we have a whole book of promises. (laughs) We have a book where God is not speaking to us in the past. Right now, as we read Scripture, God is speaking to our hearts in the present tense. He has not set us adrift and said, hey, go handle the world on your own. He's with us. He speaks to us. He gives us truth. He affirms that truth with the spirit that's in us. And finally, in the end of verse six, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is a present, this word know, present and active. We know it now by the the indwelling of the spirit that, that, testifies to the truth and because we have the scriptures and we have what we need to know what is true and what is not. Just so happened this morning, um, I'm a creature of habit at times and so I kind of switched it up on Sunday mornings, but this morning I was, I went to Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers and um, I just opened it and it opened to faith in the world. This is a prayer from the Valley of Vision. I'm just going to read a portion of it, but listen to how perfect this is. The world is artful artful to entrap. It approaches in a fascinating guise. It extends many a gilded bait, presents many a charming face. Let my faith scan every painted bauble and escape every bewitching snare in a victory that overcomes all things. That's what John's calling us to do. The world has very enticing things that we want to accept as true. John is saying that's not enough to sound, whether it sounds good or benefits us, we must go to Christ. So as we look back at how we started Christ in culture, it is no question, church, that we are called to be out there in the world. No question about that. We heard from the words of Jesus. As you sent me, I send them. So we're to be in the world. And as we're in the world, we're called to be citizens, I would say, of a secondary nature of our city, of our neighborhood, of our state, of our country, of our world. But what are we primarily? We're citizens of another place. We're ambassadors for Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be. So as we go out, as we advance in the world, how are we supposed to do that? 
with a steady confidence tethered to the truth that's given to us by grace through faith. Faith in the fact that God, Jesus is God, he is Savior, the only one, that the spirit of truth is in us, the word of truth is highly, highly accessible to us, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're, they're not just sitting back waiting to see what we're going to do. They've overcome the world already, past tense. We can walk forward in the confidence that his victory is our victory. And I think that's the perfect way to view the Lord's Supper this morning. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of the victory of Christ. The victory of Christ. And, and as we are victors, how are we victors in Christ? There's this mysterious miracle called union with Christ. And so as we have are awakened in our hearts and brought to life, we have faith in Christ, something happens. And when Jesus died on the cross, when his body was broken and his blood was shed, we died with him to sin. And as he was raised again, again, in and, and a miraculous mystery, we were raised again in victory. His victory is our victory. And the reality is, church, whether we feel it or not, we dwell all the time in those realities. We're dead to our sin. We're alive in Christ. And the Lord's Supper is not a time to like recharge that battery and get more grace. No, the Lord's Supper is a reminder of that everlasting faithfulness of God. And so this morning, imagine this as a faucet of grace. And as you come forward, it's not because you've earned it. It's not because you're great or you're dressed well or you're wearing a cardigan. I mean, I think I'm the only one. I don't see anybody else with a cardigan. No. Um, so that's not why I'm up here. I'm up here because I'm a sinner and I'm saved by grace. So as you eat this bread and drink this cup, wash yourself anew in the promises of God that are true every minute of every day for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, that he is God truly, that he was man truly, that he came to do those things we talked about to save us from our sin, if you believe that is true, you've made that profession of faith, you've been baptized, you are welcomed, even though you're not worthy to come and participate in this time. For those of you who are here, and either you don't believe those things, um, or you are in a place in your life where you refuse to repent of a particular sin, the scriptures make it clear this is not the time or the place for you to come and share in this time. So I'd encourage you not to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to offer a prayer of blessing for us, and then I'm going to invite some elders forward to help me uh, distribute the Lord's Supper this morning. Father in heaven, We, as a church body, here in this place, rely completely on your promises. There's nothing I can do to make this Lord's Supper mean something more than bread and wine or juice. I don't have words of a magic spell or something, Lord. This is not the power of man. We are participating in something that is true and real only by the power of God. And so we ask 
this morning for the blessing that you would be to us to convince us of that truth. That this supper, this bread, this wine or juice is something that feeds our very souls, not just our bellies. So we ask that as we stand up from our seat when it's time, walk forward, we would remember your promises are eternal, your promises are true, your promises were given before we acted in faith. And I pray, Lord, that this would be a time of renewal, a reminder of your grace for us, the wretches that we are. And so we pray that blessing over this time. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen.